The scripture reading today is found from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 22 through 32. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourselves with a new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing rather than labor and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's join in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would meet us in these words of Scripture, that we would know how we might apply them to our lives and how we might be a people that inhabit things that Jesus teaches us. So meet us, we ask in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. So we're in the midst of our, our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount uh, that we've called The Politics of Jesus as we begin to think about his imagination for uh, the world and for the kingdom that is coming in him, the kingdom of heaven that is near us. Um, and so naturally, last week we saw that Jesus begins to talk about the law. And he says, I haven't come to abolish the law or to abandon the law, but rather to lead to its fulfillment. And at the same time, it's not a fulfillment that you may be expecting. It exceeds the imagination and the teaching of the religious professionals of Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And so this week, Jesus begins to move into a section of this particular teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, 
in which he offers a case study. There'll be more to come, but this week we're specifically thinking about the commandment to not kill, to not take life, to not murder. And so this is that famous section where Jesus begins to utilize that phrase, you've heard it said, but I say to you, type statements. And here, he begins to reflect on this commandment against murder. And he seeks to expand our imagination uh, to far more than the outer boundary of taking the life of another, to all of the interior ways and all of the overlooked ways and all of the tolerated ways, then and now, that we actually live in a way that is dismissive of our brother, our sister, our neighbor. Jesus uh, mentions three things specifically, right? It's not an exhaustive list. We shouldn't treat it as an exhaustive list, but we should see that he's moving our minds to think in a new direction and a new shift uh, toward this other space with regard to this commandment. Specifically, to think about anger or our use of insult in the way we interact with one another or dismissive name-calling. Here he specifically references, uh, don't call your brother a fool. And he's not so much thinking about, I don't think, this um, you know, honest effort to discern whether someone is a wise character or a foolish character, but rather name-calling that moves beyond the possibility of reconciliation. In other words, it's a way in which we give up on someone. It's a way in which we diminish their personhood and their agency. And it's oddly and sadly something that is quite tolerated uh, in our society and specifically in American politics, much to our shame. Jesus may be pulling threads out of the Beatitudes, I think, as we look on these case studies. It's interesting to think about the interconnectivity of the sermon itself, right? So think of his statement about blessed are the peacemakers or blessed are you when you hunger and you thirst for justice. Uh, Here Jesus begins to work some of those ideas into this teaching on murder. Are you dismissive of others or are you a reconciling peacemaker, someone that's hungry for justice, we might say? Where do we apply this or how do we think about this? Most obviously in our everyday relationships, right? Those relationships closest into you, your family. Those relationships in the next circle that you're interacting with, uh, friends and neighbors and colleagues in the workspace. All of these are places of real, lived, interpersonal relationship. Are there places where we struggle with one another or we're alienated from one another? Jesus seems to be urging us to think about these spaces of life. He invites us to think about all of these hidden parts of ourselves, the rubble of our own relationships. Maybe think about the way you roll your eyes at someone when they've repeated something. Maybe think about the way you're tempted to write someone off Uh, Or, you know, I think about my inclination to sort of indulge in insult occasionally or to think dismissive thoughts of other people or to pigeonhole someone as I uh, sort of place a label or a name on them in some way, a name that they perhaps can't escape from even in my own judgment, right? We have these ways of interacting with one another, and it was common in society then, it's common in society now, but these are ways in which we live abusively toward our neighbor and not in love. These are the kinds of things that Jesus begins to pull into the frame of murder, and they are sadly tolerated behaviors in our lives personally, but also publicly. 
So clearly Jesus has in mind the interpersonal space that we interact with. But I think it's fair to say that he likely has far more in mind, not only our interpersonal live spaces of relationship, but the way in which we participate in institutions within the society in which anger and insult and name-calling and, yes, murder are sort of embedded in those institutions. These are things and ways of being and relating to neighbor that get woven into the aspects of the social life. I'm reminded of a comment that the sociology, sociologist Peter Berger commented about culture, that we easily understand that we have a role in making culture, in creating things. Indeed, from the perspective of faith, we believe that God has made us to act into our world. But Berger observes that culture also acts back on us. In other words, we are created by it as much as we create it. No one is a self-made individual. Within the realm of discipleship, we're simply asking questions of who is teaching you how to live life and who is structuring a way or a path in which you might live life. God has made us to extend ourselves out into the world that we build out and we create. So what happens when we have a practice of injustice or when inequities in society or the anger that is common in society or the insulting way that we live life with one another when we find difference in one another, what happens when these things are sort of buried into life more broadly? The way we police, the way we relate to money, the way we think about educational institutions and the way they operate and so on and so forth across every sphere of life we could begin to sort of inquire about the institutionalization or the way in which some abuse is systematized in culture itself. Jesus isn't simply talking about individuals, but remember, he's speaking to a community about a kingdom, about a commonwealth, in which these dehumanizing ways of relating to neighbor were embedded in the society of Israel then, and I think even in our own society now. Jesus wants us to understand that in the kingdom that has come near, these institutionalized forms of injustice are rooted out uh, of the world that is to come in him. All institutionalized forms of inequity and injustice, racism, white supremacy, are legitimate topics to explore when we come into Jesus' teaching about the law, specifically here around murder. So how important is this topic to Jesus? Well, it's important enough to call off worship, which ironically we have done this morning uh, because of snow. And in a certain sense, we have throughout this period this year in which we've been invited to sort of imagine and understand the problems of something like institutional racism. We are calling off worship week after week after week because of the pandemic. Jesus wants us to think about the priority of reconciliation over our places of alienation. Here he gives us the illustration of someone that has come to Jerusalem, to the temple, as a part of their covenantal obligation to worship God. So you've made preparations for the trip. You've, um, maybe it's been a long distance. Maybe it's taken you a few days to get to worship in this particular context. And you've shown up in the temple courts, sacrifice in hand, or at least you're in the process of getting it in hand. And Jesus says, what happens in that moment if what comes to your mind in that space, that you're not reconciled with someone? Jesus says, leave your sacrifice. Leave the temple and go be reconciled to your brother. 
Our life with our neighbor is the context of our greater worship of God. These things go together. One of the harder parts of Jesus' teaching as he highlights the importance of reconciliation is this uh, gesture toward hell here, right? Specifically, he's using the Valley of Gehenna, or the fires of Gehenna come to mind. This is the smoldering sort of garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. I don't think Jesus is trying to scare us into the kingdom or to scare us to get our anger and insults and murderous hearts in order. This isn't even the kind of tactic that um, maybe uh, someone from a previous generation would have sort of laid upon you as you got older and they realized you'd not yet taken your faith seriously. This isn't trying to scare you into heaven because of your fear of hell. Rather, God is rather reminding us here of ways in which he's for us. Think about it this way. God essentially says, or Jesus rather teaches here, that this subhuman way of interacting with our neighbor, this life that is driven by anger and driven by insults and dismissive labeling, names and murder itself, these things are only fit for the garbage dump. They're destined to burn up. Now, that's only a negative commentary if you happen to be a person who's into name-calling and insulting others, living with unresolved anger, not looking seriously at these things in our lives and our hearts, these roots of the problem of murder, or actually taking the life of another. So what do we do? Jesus says, prioritize and practice reconciliation. Go and be reconciled to your brother, your sister, your neighbor. And in this space of honoring someone else's experience, honoring their truth, we could even say, we open up space in our own lives in which they might experience the God who sees, who hears, who cares, who loves. It often will involve confession, humble confession, right? Listening to the point that we can enter the experience of the other, of how they've experienced us, perhaps. Owning our part in the failure of that relationship, owning what we've done, and owning what we've left undone. All the things that we do that create the wrong that has come to our imagination in this place when we would worship God, when we realize we're alienated from our brother, personally or even institutionally. We do this because God is a God who is reconciling. He is the God who becomes poor, who is meek, who is peacemaking, who is justice-hungering. And so we seek to be like him because we experience him relating to us in a reconciling way. In Jesus, we find a God who receives the brunt of human anger, envy, hate, dismissiveness, injustice, and insult, all culminating in his own wrongful death. It is certainly a mystery, the death of Jesus on the cross. But in that strange and dark moment on the cross, Jesus has reconciliation on heart and mind and on his body itself. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Some of the most beautiful and reconciling words that have ever been mentioned. God is lovingly and empathetically aware of our lack of awareness. That we don't even get how alienated we are and how alienating we are. In our ignorance, Jesus asks that we be forgiven, even as he finishes the death that is set in motion 
by his unjust death sentence. It isn't a scene that should make us feel bad or should even make us feel shameful or like we owe God in some tit-for-tat way. But rather, this is a scene in which we should say, who knew that God was like that? A reconciling and loving father, a prodigal God who just wants to know us. That amidst our own experiences of human evil, the evil that we give out and the evil that we experience, God intends a very different and good ending. And here, in this early part of Jesus' sermon on the politics of the kingdom, he invites us to begin to imagine a world in which we are not afraid of reconciliation. Our life with God, our life with one another, our life across the institutions that we come in contact with in this earthly life, our life in the world, all of the ways in which we've experienced brokenness, we are able and enabled to look deeply and truthfully into these spaces without fear or shame because Jesus from the cross says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. If reconciliation is God's work revealed in Jesus, then of course, Jesus said, if you have gathered this morning for worship, sacrifice in hand, and the Holy Spirit brings to mind broken relationship, leave your sacrifice, go and be reconciled. Love in the way the one you have come to worship loves you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.